And uh, it's so delightful to be here today with Sevilla. This is our first get together of the new year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been really excited about this, but at the same time, kind of apprehensive because as usual, there's so much stuff stuffed up in my brain. <laughs> I don't know if I can get it out. So I really would like to just listen to you to begin with. Um, we've been talking a lot about the importance of opponent processing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then both of us were quite interested in this conversation that Jordan Peterson and John Verbicki had, which they're calling the zombie conversation. <laughs> <laughs> they do get very intense with each other. And uh, so there's a particular section in the zombie conversation where mm -hmm. they're talking about self-organizing criticality and opponent processing and um, relevance realization. And um, I thought it might be good to start there and just clip a little piece out. Now, here's the challenge to everybody watching. I'm going to tell you what, where to find it in case I have to remove the video uh, because of a copyright strike. Because oh, yeah, that's sometimes right. This, sometimes I get a copyright strike on adding the video in. So we're going to play the section that starts at 59.50 in the zombie conversation. And um, that's right here. And we're just going to go for about a minute and a half up until the time when the ad starts. The convergence is relevance realization says, you know, you know what you're actually doing is you're doing something like this evolution. And what evolution that, that cognitive evolution is doing is it's finding these important trade-off relationships between efficiency and evolvability, between exploiting the here now and exploring the there then, yeah. between being at the level of the features, zoom, zooming in and being at the level of the gestalt, yeah. between looking yeah. out into the world and stepping back and looking. And so there's all, so you can think about each one of these as a domain of opponent processing, yeah. right? Like like in your in, in your autonomic nervous system between the parasympathetic, and, and then you have this, and where, and there, and there's meta opponent processing. All of the opponent processes are also pulling in. And so you get this multidimensional state space that inter oh, here. So that's like a hierarchy of dialogues. Yes, yes, yes. And they're all intersecting. And mm -hmm. so the idea was that that is primarily what's coming out in the predictive, that, like that's how. So, you know, you know how precision weighting is working. It's basically doing this multi-dimensional opponent processing, this multi-dimensional complexification, this multi-dimensional evolution of your adaptive fit. And then the two models come together and they fit together. And it's like, it's like the marriage between Darwinian natural selection and Mendelian genetics. The mm -hmm. two theories just dovetail, dovetail mm -hmm. and come together. And they converge on a solution to the frame problem. Mm -hmm. we'll be so I just have to say, that's such a brilliant explanation of something, but he sees it as the marriage between evolution and the mm -hmm. and uh, Mendelian genetics, and I see it as a completely different picture. Um, so, for me, the picture is the picture that I get of when an well. So what he says is certainly true. You have all of these different ways of thinking that are coming into this one place and all the different, you know, meta structures and everything, really that's happening at each moment in time. That's mm -hmm. the structure of our consciousness working. But for an artist, every stroke that I put on the paper has millions of opponent processes going on at the one time in order mm -hmm. for that one stroke to appear. 
I tried to make a little graph that just shows a handful of things. Oh, um, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. But, but in reality, you have to think of this in terms of millions of intersections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you take this little graph, you can see the there's a line between each um, binary, let's say small and large or um, narrow and wide or mm -hmm. um, balance between yes and no. Are we gonna have mm -hmm. balance or are we not gonna have balance? Um, I'm reading this backwards, smooth and rough. Mm -hmm. And each one is in proportion a particular proportion for that particular qualitative decision. Mm -hmm. And it's a little murky because you can't specify it exactly, but then they intersect at one point in time. And that's, that's, one, right. stroke, that's one stroke of paint. That's right. That is, that's great. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, but, but that includes every one of these uh, principles, which are immeasurable mm -hmm. and qualitative, like, unity, harmony, contrast, mm -hmm. um, dominance, rhythm, variation, gradation, balance, every one of those principles and how each of those principles interact with color and temperature and hue and saturation and interact with all of the different quantifiable elements of the painting, like the lines and the shapes that are in the painting and the 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 concepts that you're trying to achieve or the mm -hmm. actual representation of a person or a flower or whatever, all of that stuff is coming in at one time with this picture of this opponent processing that he's talking about. So that each stroke represents this multiplicity into that one unity. And mm -hmm. then that unity begins to build another multiplicity out into the fullness of the painting. But when the painting is finished, if you took it apart again into all those little pieces, it would be completely meaningless. Mm -hmm. Each one of those strokes would be just like a meaningless pixel on the screen. Mm -hmm. But when they're all put together, they form a unity that is indivisible because now it has a meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that indivisible meaning starts out in the mind of the artist before the painting is ever put on the paper. And that the struggle is finding a way to represent that indivisible unity that's in the mind of the artist onto mm -hmm. this piece of paper. And, and that, that's the experience of life. That's the way we interact with reality and trying mm -hmm. to understand reality and each choice that we make moving forward in life. And, and I think that's the way the universe is constructed. Yeah. That's so funny because I mean, I was about to, um, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that what he's what he's kind of touching on is one way of, you know, because it's in the context of their particular conversation. And he's talking about these two. Um, I, I don't know what the genetic thing is. The what is in Mendelian genetics? I have no idea what that is. Oh, um, that was actually. Was that discovered before or after Darwin's theory? You know, like you have uh, two parents, one has a recessive gene for oh, yeah, that's brown right. eyes yeah. and one has, yeah, and yeah. so they have, uh, no, they have a recessive gene for blue eyes, but they have brown eyes because that's mm -hmm. dominant. And the other parent has blue eyes. Mm -hmm. So there's a possibility of getting a blue-eyed child, even though one of the parents mm -hmm. is brown That kind of thing, you know, or how many yeah. peas in a pod and yeah. all of that. Yeah, that's like, like what you learn in high school biology yeah. Or, yeah. earlier. 
Um, so, so they're talking about it, you know, in that particular way, um, context, but I think that you're right. I think that if you look at just the way, I mean, if you want to, if, if you want to look at the way the universe is put together, reality is put together, I think that there, the clue to it is in that is, is, you know, opponent, opponent processing is it, mm-hmm. which means something like, you know, like if you look at the Pajot, because I've, I've been very interested in uh, my book club is reading um, language of creation. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Oh my yeah. And it's I the same. Find it's a book same. club like that. Is it <laughs> online or is it in person? Well, come, come to the, you know, come to the next one. Oh, you have it online. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. I mean, it's, it's my group that I, we did the, the Persic books and now we're doing this. Um, so, so, you know, there's that first basic, you've got this, void or whatever it is in genesis this darkness this nothingness this Mm -hmm. this you there's no way you can describe it because it isn't anything and from that comes the first stroke you know the first reality which is heaven and earth that means already you've got a conjugate dualism Mm -hmm. or pair that works together that can't be separated that gives meaning to the other side. And the only way you can actually perceive reality can actually exist is through something like a conjugate pair that works in opponent, uh, you know, opposition and together, like together they're a unity. And, um, you know, as, as time, I guess you, I could say perceives one side dominates over the other, but they also, they can dominate over the other, like, there are times like you could say that now is a time, for example, that one mode of understanding reality is dominating over the other, which is more propositional. And mm-hmm. all these others that are on the other side have been forgotten. But as a total, so so as a harmony, they need to really be working in, in conjunction with each other, like your model, where you're making these split sec, un, second unconscious decisions based on mm-hmm. basically quality, right? Yeah, I, I mean, and that's exactly right. It's, un, it's unconscious decisions. It's not mm-hmm. conscious decisions for the yeah. artist, because if you make try to make the decisions conscious, mm-hmm. it's the same thing as trying to dissect a frog or something. Exactly. Right. It just takes it apart and now it has no meaning at all. So, yeah, yeah. Um, even for a person who's never heard of the elements and principles of design, mm-hmm. they are unconsciously. That's right right using yeah, them yeah. because um because that's how the universe works and that's mm-hmm. how we've grown up and that's what we are attracted to when we're looking at art or when we're looking at a landscape those are the things that attract our eye so it becomes an unconscious thing in in the work that comes out whether it's music or writing or painting or whatever but if you know the principles of elements and design, then when you run into a hiccup or if the work doesn't carry the depth or the meaning or the interest that you want it to, you can step back. You know, mm-hmm. John talks about that stepping back, taking the, the long view and kind of analyzing and mm-hmm. then you let go of that and you move back into the flow and then you step back. Um, that's very much the way it works. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and if you, you know, like Ian McGilchrist, who everyone likes in this little corner for a mm-hmm. reason, because he's talking about that same kind of thing. He's talking about there's these two modes of understanding. And one of them is going to be, you know, all encompassing, seeing the totality, the gestalt, the big picture, intu- intuition. 
-hmm. And the other one is going to take the information from that big picture way of thinking and hone in and operate on, um, you know, like with, with a few variables that have been gleaned from this big picture and then work with those variables to create a pattern. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go, you know, and then now you have this pattern. So you have to step back and see how that pattern can be used and back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you've created from these variables. Well, it, it's, it's a scientific process too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so you can't, you can't, if you start thinking in this, through this paradigm, there's nothing that can't be described or even explained by it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's so mind-blowing. I mean, and this is what I found mind-blowing about Persig was, was this, that nothing can't be explained by, you know, the, the interpolation of static and dynamic quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's, I was telling you earlier that I spent five hours yesterday going through my papers and, uh, one of the things I do when I go through my papers is I try to, I have these two big pieces of paper that are sort of a chart for me, mm-hmm. where when I run into something that's a principle that I don't want to lose, I put it on mm-hmm. one of these big pieces yeah, of paper. Yeah. And so on one of these pieces of paper, I have this list of things that go on either side there. And now I have to remember to put on static and dynamic. Mm-hmm. Because on the one side, there's accuracy. On the other side, there's expression. Yeah, yeah. Accuracy is static. Mm-hmm expression is dynamic right and you and you already know what it is you already know what goes where once you cut something into duality they'll always be in these two sides yeah you've got quantitative qualitative propositional relational Mm -hmm. um structure flexibility Mm -hmm. physical corporeal would be the way that uh, wolfgang smith breaks it down exactly i mean there's so much of that in wolfgang smith too right yeah yeah rules and relationship Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and even on the quantum level, the wave wave particle duality is two expressions of you know what essential reality. There's not well, a difference between waves and particles. It's just there are different expressions. Well, that's and that's absolutely it. I mean, the the stroke of paint on the canvas before that stroke is on the canvas is just a wave. Uh-huh, that's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just a brush moving around yeah. and and making some sort of maybe uh-huh. random decision Uh maybe uh it's self-organizing criticality who knows what it is really but that decision when it lands on the paper now it's a particle yep that's how it works that's how it works um so the the language that john uses is or john and jordan together use this language of converging to a choice Uh or decision waiting Mm-hmm. I like that decision waiting, um, although I think it it makes it um, static and sort of takes all the juice out of it. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, then what happens when you have a very complex conversation like what they're having? Mm-hmm. Because I think that if you're looking at things, if you're looking at things metaphysically, if you're um, looking at one particular thing, like making a painting, you can divide it up in what what are reasonable dualities for the context for the for that for that project which is making mm-hmm. a painting i guess what they're trying to do is the same thing concerning something and then i don't know how to define what exact where where they're looking for the convergence of these dualities 
in what they're in what they're talking about which but i do think that that's what they're talking about i think that they're trying to point out through whatever lens they're looking at this with um that that, that this is the nature of reality that's what i think this whole conversation is about except that i mean what i always hear coming from john and i i may be misunderstanding mm-hmm. him I mean, now I know I'm misunderstanding because I haven't watched enough of his work. Even if I had watched all of it, I could still misunderstand him. But um, when he comes back to talking about the one, which he does later on mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, episode, um, I can't tell if he's saying the same thing that Jung meant when he talked about the one being the union of all human consciousnesses coming together Mm -hmm. um dwelling in this universal consciousness together and that that one is somehow what he's talking about because i don't think he's i mean when i think about unity and multiplicity i think about it much more in terms that matthew pajot talks about it when he Mm -hmm. wrote the book that that there is a one from which all the multiplicity, all the multiplicity came, and that that one is, is, uh, is the one God who is manifest in three persons. So, you could say he's a. You you can't really say God is a person, but you can say he is a personal God. <laughs> so, um, which I think is slightly different way of looking at it, but but that the universe came from him as as a gift um life came as gift it's not something I was, I was reading a really interesting article um this morning that was written by andrew clavin about oh yeah 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 he wrote this article about um this idea that what we are experiencing whether I, I think he was talking about a book by Yuval Harari called mm-hmm. um, Sapiens Sapiens, and that in that book Harari says there really is no such thing as a nation or as a as money. Mm-hmm. These are all just agreements that human beings make in the way that they think about it, and we right. and we all think about it together in the same way. Then that thing exists. Sure, but. I mean, that's that's a convenient way of thinking about it. And we uh-huh. do use that language. Yeah. But the reality is. It's not just there because that's what we think about it. Yeah. We think about it because it's there. Right. We we come to. Um, Don Hoffman has gone way past that, even when he says we have adopted certain ways of behaving in order to interact with the reality that's there just to fit ourselves to it for survival but Mm -hmm. it isn't really there apples aren't really apples and tables aren't Mm -hmm. really tables it's just something that we have adapted to through evolution Mm -hmm. but i'm old-fashioned and i think an apple is an apple (laughs) i I do too and i think that um and this is where I really like, I'm going to bring Persig into it again, because this is what the one that the way of understanding that makes the most sense for me, because I'll tell you a lot of the, a lot of the complexities that these guys talk about is beyond me, you know, like, like I can't understand it on that high level. 
I have to understand it on, on a simpler level. And this is what Persig, Persig does for me. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is that, that um, these societal rules that we have, they, they are actual entities in themselves. They're patterns, they're static patterns of value, but they're on a certain level. They're on a social level. So these, while you, you, while they exist as actual entities, you know, in, in sort of a, the subjective realm, let's just say, they can't be measured like, um, you know, like a molecule. They can't be measured in, in as a as a as a material entity because they're not. Mm-hmm. But they are, and you know, they are evolved from the same source that created material entities. And this is, you know, so so his theory encompasses all of reality as static patterns. They just happen to be patterns of value that occur within the social strata. And the social strata is actually something that has evolved out of or emerged from, really. The, the emergence is a much better way to understand it that, than evolution. Although, you know, you could say they're, they're very similar. Mm-hmm. So... So the social pattern emerges out of the biological patterns, which emerge out of the inorganic patterns. So that means that there's a direct relationship between them and molecules at the lowest level. And that's how, you know, the the Persig's theory can encompass all of of perceived reality and, you know, all of reality is because you don't get social, you don't get social values until you get something that evolves from you know the whatever creature came you know came up on the on the um on the shore from the water but that those things are entities as much as the you know the creature that came up from the water if that makes any sense well let me read you what um what was in the Andrew Clavin article mm-hmm. and then tell me how that if, if it fits with what yeah. you're saying. Oh, and one thing I want to say is this is going to sound like it is just strict material, you know, scientific materialism, but but all the while you have to, you know, realize that in Persig's work is a godlike force called quality mm-hmm. that is driving these things to happen, that, that it's just not random spontaneity, you know, there's, there's something that is toward the good, propelled by the good, that is causing these things to happen. So it's not just strictly material evolutionary theory. Right. There's a telos involved. There's right? a telos. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, in Andrew Claven's article, he's saying that um, Yuval Harari sort of insists mm-hmm. that religion, nationhood, money, law, and human rights are just intersubjective phenomena mm-hmm. existing in the shared imaginations of millions of people. Mm-hmm that they are fictions. That, mm-hmm. That's yeah. Harari's yeah. word. Mm-hmm. Harari says, none of these things exist outside the stories that people invent and tell one another. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. And Slavin um, goes on to say, That's not how fiction works. Mm -hmm. Good fiction does not create phenomena. It describes them. Mm -hmm. So it can't be a fiction because it's Mm -mm. it's being described because it's actually there. 
Mm -hmm. To me, that's kind of the whole problem with, um, even when I hear Peterson and Douglas Murray Mm -hmm. and Ian McGilchrist Mm -hmm. and, and all of them, I, I love listening to them. They have ways Mm -hmm. of talking about it that are just great, but it almost seems to me that they're unknowingly nourishing a view of the world in which that actuality is no longer there. Yeah. We've just found yeah. a nicer way to talk about the fiction yeah. that we're going to act as if we're going to have a religion that's not mm-hmm. a religion or something mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. going to hold society together. But if it's just a fiction, it's not going to last very long. And, you know, Harari can be the nicest guy in the world, but if... Well, they, they if, say he's not. <laughs> well, even if he were, uh-huh. someone who says that they're, they're are no gods, there are no mm-hmm. nations, no yeah. money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination. Yeah, yeah. When the common imagination shifts, what the heck is going to happen, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose Yuval Harari then is the one that's going to tell us how to do things. When the yeah, sure. that's right. No, I, I get exactly what you're saying, because at the bottom of it, you know, in, including Peterson, they're having a really hard time. I mean, both Peterson and, and John Pervakey um because like to to go in the direction that you're implying they would have to kind of somehow agree that there's a god right mm-hmm. and that's why i think and i'm not going to go on and on about persig i've done plenty of that but i don't i think that persig is compatible with with believing there's a god um not necessarily you know that can work he can work in Christian, his theory can work in Christianity and his theory can work in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But there has to be the sensibility that it isn't something random that starts with particles. And that's the problem that if you don't somehow see something like God or something like quality as a, the ultimate force in the universe before this duality that happens, the separation of heaven and earth then you're going to end up with, you know, with a particle, right? You're going to end up with something that at the bottom mm-hmm. is inorganic. Well, let, let's take that picture and move over to organics for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a human being, since we're so mm-hmm. simple to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, or, or any multicellular organism, which Michael Levin is always mm-hmm. talking about, his idea is that human beings are just a, an amalgam of all these various um, multicellular communities that came together mm-hmm. accidentally, you know, mm-hmm. in, in evolution to eventually group up in various groupings and ended up being a human being and that we mm-hmm. are a community of communities, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I can understand. It's a very useful picture because we have, who, our, who did you say again? This is Michael Levin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That we're a community of communities. Mm-hmm. My my heart is a community of cells that mm-hmm. is working towards a certain project, and my lungs is a community of cells, and my blood is a certain other kind of cell, and then the bacteria that live in me are another community, mm-hmm. and that 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 somehow all those different communities came together to make an organism, starting with the simplest ones, obviously, and then mm-hmm. moving up through evolutionary process. Nevertheless, a human being does arise from a unity. Mm-hmm. 
right? There is that mm-hmm. there's a gamete that's formed mm-hmm. when a when a sperm and an ovum come together. Yeah. And that unity is what creates a human being. That unity then springs into this amazing multiplicity, which mm-hmm. all seems to have a direction and a goal and a telos and a quality that every one of these um, multicellular groupings, like Levins talks about this, he even uses this language that when they go to build an arm, they signal to each other where to build that arm and how long the arm is supposed to be and when they're supposed to Mm -hmm. stop when the arm Mm -hmm. is the right length. And so obviously they're striving towards a palette, a a pattern of quality Mm -hmm. that is somewhere in that cell. Mm-hmm. It's not in the DNA, though. The pattern of quality is not in the DNA. So, right. um, so you have this unity arising into this multiplicity. But then, even though I am a multiplicity, I am a unity. <laughs> and my yeah. unity will join with another unity. I mean, long ago, it joined with another unity. And the two mm-hmm. of us made another unity that sprang mm-hmm. into a multiplicity. So you can't if you dissect a human person down into its individual cells, its individual components, you've got nothing. Yeah. Unless you're starting with the individual unity that starts yeah. at the beginning of a human being. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. On the other hand, it seems that every cell in the human body carries all the information for the body, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. like completely unbelievable, you know? I know, isn't it? Yeah. And not just yeah. the DNA, but lots of other information besides. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think he said, Levin said something one time that in the mucosa or in your spit, that, that actually they can, they're going to come to a place that they'll be able to diagnose anything that's going on in your body just by looking at the spit. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's going to be, that's going to be something. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to the next little clip? Yeah. Um, oh, and one thing, one thing I wanted to say, though, that just occurred to me is, and this is why I think that, you know, John Verveke is going so much in the direction of Neoplatonism, that um, the one he's talking about is, is the Neoplatonist one, Plotinus, which is, you know, and, and the thing is, in, in, um, Pajot, I think, has a very similar conception. Like Pajot's, the way Pajot has described God and the way Plotinus describes God are very similar. You know, they're not an anthropomorphic in any way. They are this force, this this force of creation mm-hmm. and good is is the best way I can I can arrive at it. So that it is it's something that's beyond all comprehension but we know that it's a creative force for the good Mm -hmm. is that is that your understanding of his yes but but i think there's there's this um proviso that i would make and i think Mm -hmm. that i'm on the same page with jonathan and that is that when we interact with when we if if we can interact with god Mm -hmm. at all we're interacting with god as one of the persons of the trinity mm-hmm. either the father or the son or the holy spirit mm-hmm. and that is the way that this that god 
has mm-hmm. manifested himself to man so that we can interact with him so that mm-hmm. because he's so far above and beyond anything that we could ever all imagine understand it. that we can't we yeah. can't comprehend we can't interact yeah, yeah so, totally inaccessible right, right? so god manifests yeah. himself in three persons mm-hmm. so he is a personal god so the new age type people will think about god as a force mm-hmm. okay but if he is just a force then a force is something that you can manipulate you can plug yourself into it you yeah. can power from this force you can but that's not the way God chose to manifest himself yeah. to us. He yeah. chose to manifest himself to us as a person, a personal God, you know, the mm-hmm. son who incarnated into the world for mm-hmm. a purpose and, and the father and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's our relational connection to God is with a mm-hmm. person because we have different types of relationships with persons than we do with forces. Yeah. So that's why... If you're only thinking of God as the one that is this impersonal Mm -hmm. force, then you're going to be thinking a very different way about who God is and and how to interact with him. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I I know that there's going to be distinction between Peugeot and Verbeke. And that's it, right? What you just described. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I would I'm think that Pasha would say that, that, you know, that God would manifest himself as a person. And I don't know if Verveke would say that. But mm-hmm. I think the thing is that the conception that beyond all understanding that emanates, um, emanates into the world through mm-hmm. the, through good, through, through, you know, the creation, through creation and good. Mm-hmm is close enough that they can have a conversation and that through an understanding of Plato and Neoplatonism, they can have, a, they, they can have, a you know, that they can have some agreement. Mm-hmm. And that's why I definitely think that this is as close as, you know, that that's like getting really close for John for Well, yeah, there's one point in the video where he's, where Jordan Peterson is talking about mm-hmm. um, God is, always receding mm-hmm. and i know what he means by that yeah, I mean, yeah. however close You're you never think gonna you get might there. be getting yeah. to god you can never yeah. you know yeah. i mean it's like a gnat getting trying yeah. to trying to touch the moon or something you know yeah. it's, it's always receding mm-hmm. and then john jumps in and says yes but but he's also always coming close that's right see, that's the personal yeah. aspect yeah. right that's the part yeah. that says look i love you i want to be yeah. with you i want us to have a relationship but even in that, even in that understanding, you've got that 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 constant that um, conjugate duality that we were talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, you've got you know the big picture being God and the actual manifestation being Christ, and the Holy Spirit being you know the dynamic, the the good that 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 um, would that be you know that <laughs> quality the good the thing that makes that drives this, these two parts towards the whole that keeps the two mm-hmm. parts um united yeah yeah i mean this the scripture talks about the unity mm-hmm. of the spirit right? yeah right and, that, and the spirit and is that the also thing that... unites all the members of the body together yeah it's the it one... unites allows this allows allows for both sides allows for 
um, differentiation and unity at ex- at the same time, always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The glue. Yeah, it, in fact, that makes me think about something. Um, something that I ran into in my pile of papers yesterday. <laughs> uh, it's a quote from Guy Sen- Singstock. Oh, yeah. It takes all of your freedom to deeply obey something. And I was thinking about this conjugate duality of freedom mm-hmm. and obedience. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote, um, this says something fundamental about the universe and quantum physics and God's participation in the dance. If you think about the N body problem, that's the problem where gravity can't answer exactly how planetary systems work once you get beyond I think it's three mm-hmm. bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, two bodies, they understand perfectly well how the moon goes around the earth and how the earth goes around the sun. But once you get beyond three bodies, gravity can't answer the question anymore. And so the law of gravity, whatever you claim it to be, changes in nature somehow or requires more complicated calculations the more bodies that are involved because each one exerts its own gravity or modifies space-time or responds in its own way to Mm space-time in response to the other bodies involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you multiply this effect, not only with gravity, but with all the other constants that describe the structure of the universe, you can see that there needs to be both the ultimate inflexibility, freedom, in how those laws respond to each other and the ultimate inobedience in how the universe exhibits the characteristics of these laws. So this this freedom and obedience thing operates everywhere on the physical level. It operates on um, an artist painting. You know, the uh-huh. freedom is the stepping back and getting the big picture. The obedience is coming down to the accuracy. Uh-huh. The the obedience is the static, and the freedom is the quality. Yeah, right? and, and it's all part of that dance. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly a, a, another example of exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So let me take a, let's just move ahead one minute yeah. in this conversation. Like, okay. We were going to take this conversation <laughs> apart. Like I said, it would three episodes a week for the oh, yeah, rest yeah, of sure. life. But um, let's just go there now and uh, take a look at the part after the ad. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so, and then I'll be able to use that to talk about. Okay, okay. Well, I, I wanted to just make a segue here that people yeah. might find interesting. I think all that's modeled extremely well, particularly by symphonic music, because yes. what you have, if you listen to 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 symphonic music, what you see is there's dialogues at the level of the instrument, right? So there'll be a proposition and then a counter response, yeah. and then all those dialogues are structured hierarchically in relationship to a higher order structure, and that's the melodic integrity of the entire piece. And people will align themselves with that, right? And so you can see this multi-dimensional processing occurring in a musical piece that speaks to the core issue of reality, which is actually the harmony and the beauty of the piece itself. Uh, And so, and and that that means that that deep meaning that you're describing is pointing to something like the optimized balance between multiple levels of processing simultaneously. And some of that is also temporal, right? Balancing the here and now, as you said, with the, what did you call it? The there, there, the there and then. Right, right. 
And so the, the reality is the emergent balance between all those different viewpoints rather right. than any given viewpoint. And it flows, right? Like, so think th this is perfect to, uh, uh, because, you know, music is basically playing with our salience landscaping mm -hmm. for the yeah. sake of playing. Yeah. It's computer, it's, uh, it's for, for me, it's, in, it's the being mode. It's not the having mode. We're not, we're not trying to do anything. We're, we're in pure development because we're doing pure play. We play yes, music. Pure play. Yeah. Pure, pure play. play. You bet. Right? Music is the closest. What Rex Murphy said, all music, all art aspires to the condition of music. Right. And notice how, how music is not in your... It's, yeah. it's between, it's fundamental, the resonance, the betweenness, the connectedness, mm -hmm. the fitness. You see that in dancing. Right. And then Rusin, John Rusin, in, in, in Bearing Witness to Epiphany, and I got to talk to John Rusin. Mm -hmm. he, he said, and this is so, and he admits it because he's deeply influenced by Plato. This is such a platonic thing. Look, think about how intelligibility is basically, there's a musicality to intelligibility. Right, right, definitely. Right, right. so there are rhythms. Right, and then there's melodies. Everything has its through line, which is like a melody, and then the melodies and the rhythm go together with an overarching harmony. Yeah. and you're getting all of the salience line, and right, and so music, and that's all pointing to something like an, an ultimate unity in some oh, well, fundamental the sense. The one in Neoplatonism, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about that one idea too. So we we'll get into that a little bit later. But to return to consciousness. Yes. Okay. So. Uh, and, and consciousness is closely associated with, uh, with of course, with attention, with working memory, and with fluid, fluid intelligence. Yes, yes, right. Yes. And, 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 and I think we better stop there, or we're getting <laughs> a copyright strike. Um, <laughs> That's a great section, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so Jordan is describing the symphony. The music. Mm -hmm. So what what came to your mind when you were listening to that? Um, well, what came to my mind is like he's talking about the individual instrument, like let's just say he's talking about each individual instruments adding up to the harmony, the harmony of the symphony. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because like you will hear the whole harmony of the symphony as a one. But as you're listening, each individual instrument will also come out to you, you know, as, as a part. Mm hmm. And, and for a moment, you'll be listening to that part, and then you'll go back, you know, you go close, hear the French horn, and then you go back to the symphony, you'll go close, hear the violin section, or the violin solo, you'll go back to the symphony, and it and throughout this whole experience of listening to the symphonic piece, you have a back and forth between these two sides. And probably for each person, that's a unique experience. And for each person, it's a unique experience. Yeah. yeah. Not everybody is going to be zoning in on exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly. exactly the same yeah. moment. Uh, yeah. Which kind of implies it's going to be, you know, your 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 own symphony. It's going to be your own experience of of totality and and um, parts. Well, and. John made this comment right towards the end of that section. He said, in reality, is the emerging balance that that comes out of that. And I just want to hold up a marker on that a little bit mm -hmm. because there's several times in this talk when they use the term ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. And usually when they say ultimate reality, it kind of lines up with what I think of as ultimate reality. But in this particular case, if he says reality is the emerging balance, then what he's actually saying is that he's talking about the experience being between 
between the listener and the music, mm -hmm. that's where the experience lies, mm -hmm. which yeah. is certainly true. But that experience is only possible if the music is there. That's right. Right. It's not yeah. that experience is not something that emerges out of the fact that the music is balanced. Yeah. <laughs> that experience emerges out of the fact that the music is there. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but but it seems sometimes when they're talking about these things that they're saying that there is that the only reality exists in this between space. That there's what do you what do you think? I think that there that that the music itself has a reality. Yeah. And true. the listener has a reality. And yeah. that my experience, like you said, my experience of the music is going to be idiosyncratic to yours. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because I am a different person than you are. And I mm -hmm. have a I've had different experiences of my own connections to reality, but my, but, but there actually is a reality that we're both, mm -hmm. it might line up with what Persig talks about as the quality. Yeah. Well, right? it lines up with, you know, like these, like your subjective experience of these static patterns. Like, let's just say the symphony is a pattern. I mean, the symphony is on paper it's a particular pattern and in playing it's a particular pattern and all the the symphony is encompassed of multi-levels of patterns as are human beings we're, we're encompassed of you know uh, biological social and intellectual patterns mm -hmm. and the, we're a convergence of patterns reacting with another convergence of patterns but it's only in that moment of understanding, you know, the, the patterns meeting each other in that moment, that ultimate, now that, that is perfect, that the only reality that actually exists is that moment where subject meets the object, where the person hears the symphony. Because after that moment of perceiving the symphony, you realize what it is and it's in the past. So, oh. so God would be found in person. God would be found in that moment of convergence, in that quality event. He calls it. That okay, it's getting a little clearer for me. Let let me. I I've probably said this before to you, but my picture of ultimate reality is that Christ Himself is the ultimate reality, mm -hmm. and that. Um, he represents goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he is a, a real person who was wow. incarnated in actual time and, um, and all of those things. But at the same time, he also represents goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm -hmm. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And mm -hmm. truth is another, in Greek, is another word for reality. Mm -hmm. So I think it's Peterson that talks about it's so important to believe in the goodness of being. Mm -hmm. And part of living is coming to the place where regardless of what our experiences are in the world, we recognize the goodness of being. Mm -hmm. And how that happens is, you know, maybe, maybe something happens that hurts you. But in the experience of that, you also grow a little tougher, you grow mm -hmm. a little bit more courageous, you grow um, 
in many different ways. So you're always growing. And as you're growing, you're kind of pushing up against the edge of this perfection that is reality. Mm-hmm. And, and you, but you, you can never get there, which means there's always room for growth. There's always mm-hmm. room for change. There's always room for transformation. But some people tend to talk about reality as hitting you upside the head with a plank. You know, when, when you, when you have this insight, oh my mm-hmm. God, you know, that was stupid. I have to change my course, mm-hmm. but that's not, I don't think it's really like that. I don't think it's uh um, I think Neil DeGrade was the one who said, God is not a bean counter. Mm-hmm. He's not waiting with a plank to hit you upside the head or <laughs> yeah. make a mistake, but he is there to correct you and guide you and teach you right. in, into yeah. the path that will help you to ultimately align mm-hmm. with reality so that you don't any longer have these experiences where you're butting your head up against something that's intractable. Yeah. So, um, so in that sense, our life experience is guiding us towards this place where we can fully align with Christ, where we can be fully in him as he mm-hmm. is fully in us. And, uh, but that also means that there is a reality that we're aligning to an actual mm-hmm. reality. Yeah. That actual reality is Christ and his mm-hmm. truth and goodness and beauty. Not that it's just some Jungian archetype of, mm-hmm. um, and so this is where I don't know where Persig comes down when he's talking about the social and the biological and mm. the, what's the other intellectual one? intellectual quality. Is he talking about something that just arose as an emergent aspect of humanity as we evolved? Or does he think there is actually a perfection of social I don't, that's, that's a question I don't know enough about Persig to answer, but I can um, read. I mean, maybe um, it's not even an important question. Um, I, I don't know if he knows, he thinks, he, he would think that the patterns in themselves, um, this is where they are, but where are they, go- where are they going? You know, it's, it's in the going, it's in the good that drives the patterns to exist in the first place that counts so in a sense that is god in another sense there isn't any manifest reality that you can point to as in christianity where you say it's christ Mm -hmm. so that would be a difference but i think it's kind of like pajot and verveke where it's it's you know through neapolitan neoplatonism they get close they're not going to be the same because mm-hmm. Pajot is going to say there's a manifest reality and, and that manifest reality unfolds to us as Christ. I think he would mm-hmm. say the same thing. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be that difference where do you have a man, do you, are you going to, um, are you going to identify that manifest reality as ultimate reality? Or are you going to go into something that's not, you know, that's, that's not a man that, that is, like like god maybe more as a force you know but um but in our experience and it, it is tough because we're also limited beings in in the universe and we we live and we die so in that limitation how can that good even be expressed at all except for something manifest 
-hmm. And that's just my own dilemma with it. That's why, like, when I hear, you know, when I perceive of these two sides, Christ being ultimate reality and quality being ultimate reality, I, I can I can see it both ways because one has to do with the fact that, you know, we're limited beings in the universe and we're not going to be around here forever. So within the limitations, we've got to have some representation that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about all of, you know, existence as we understand it, then that one time, you know, man didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So in Christianity, this is the ultimate expression. After all this evolution, the ultimate expression is of being man. But in a in a more Eastern, let's just say, understanding, and Persig, I think, in my in my understanding, Persig takes Western conception, which is sort of Neoplatonic, and Eastern conception, which is more Taoism, mm-hmm. and there's a sort of marriage of the two. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that even sounds a lot like C.S. Lewis, <laughs> because C.S. Lewis, um, yeah. you know, at the end of Abolition of Man, he has a whole section on the Tao. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. he he's not using it exactly. I, I, I don't know, because I've never studied Taoism, but the way Lewis is using yeah. it is to say there is a certain way that the world works. Mm-hmm. And there's no use in trying to pretend that it doesn't work that way. And yeah. here's how it works. And then he lays out the Tao, yeah. which is this universal reality or universal yeah. truth or components mm-hmm. of truth. Yeah. And um, which I, I guess is what you're saying that Persig talks about with these different aspects of quality that in some sense, quality is, is quality the pattern generating force mm-hmm. okay so um well i would say quality is the totality and within that is dynamic and static and dynamic and, and it's a kind of interactivity of dynamic and static yeah. that produces yeah. patterns yes well static are the patterns the static are the patterns the dynamic is the force that acts on and in, in, you know that it's the it's just let's just say um it's 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 the pushing toward the quality is the pushing towards the good this is where i'm gonna not make sense so so. it's okay i mean yeah because it's it's not an exact science with this stuff and i'm not even sure but but the static being the patterns is sort of like then the 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 physical laws the laws of gravity and the constants, those would be static patterns. Those are laws of the inorganic level. The yeah. law of gravity is a law of the inorganic level. And, and, uh, but then beyond that, does he say that there's a pattern, there are patterns at the inorganic level? The, the patterns of the inorganic level are, is matter, what we see, you know, um, elements, molecules, those are the patterns of the inorganic level. Okay, and then how those how those elements fit together is what makes what, what we what, see when we look at an apple. It's made up of atoms and molecules and so forth in in a in a pattern. It's well, that would be a biological. It, that would be um, a biological pattern. Okay, because well, it's alive. A rock. You could take yeah, a rock. Yeah, sure. Rock would be an inorganic what, pattern. Uh, let me let me let me give a conception of Christ in Persic's um, in Persic's model. It would be 
the highest quality social pattern of value. It's mankind, what is the optimal, you know, at the very top of the social hierarchy, you will find Christ. I guess what I'm getting at is in Persick's model, does Christ arrive at that position because of the interaction of social thought and imagination? Or is Christ what it is what social patterns are work moving towards in it's politics. what social patterns are moving towards okay that's what it would be so religion in in um in persig is is man's mankind's desire to understand himself and his place in the universe so it's gonna occur it you know, it might be informed by intellectual patterns, but it but it's occurs within the social level mm -hmm. by dynamic quality, you know, by quality, pushing the social patterns towards the highest, which would be Christ. In in my in, in my opinion, you mm -hmm. know, if I were to say, he's never said that, but that's mm -hmm. what I would say, having you know, from what I can gather. Mm -hmm. But there's another difference, I'd say, and, and this is also in, in Taoism and in Persig's versus Neoplatonism and Christianity. And that is that in, in the former, emergence is dominant, and in the latter, eminence is dominant. Is that fair to say? Well, the, the former in Christianity, one. would you say that eminence is dominant over emergence? Um, or are they a conjugate pair in Christianity? Because I'd say, like, it seems to me in religion, there is something above drawing us toward it. And it seems to so me when you use when you use eminence and emergence, how would they line up with um, imminent and transcendent? Oh, transcendent. Yeah, that's maybe what I'm what I'm trying to say. Okay, so my understanding, I'm I am uh -huh. no theologian at all, but my understanding is that the, that that there's both transcendence and imminence. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be that in Christianity that it is like what's above is dominant over what's below, like what's above, what's above informs what's below. Um, what's above informs what's below. Well, in the Trinity, there is no above and below. There's total equality right. amongst the members of the Trinity. So when you're thinking about above and below, you could be thinking, I mean, if you're thinking about heaven and earth in yeah. the, in the um, Matthew Peugeot hierarchy, heaven in heaven informs and earth expresses yeah right which i think is a really beautiful paradigm to think about um but if i could take a very pedantic example of a, a well-functioning corporation mm -hmm. you have a ceo and then you have the hierarchy of employees yeah. the, the bosses and the workers <clears throat> And in a in a hierarchy that's functioning properly, the 
the workers are the dominant number, mm-hmm. dominant in number. Um, and the CEO kind of informs the corporation of the direction yeah. that we're going to go. And then the workers are through the hierarchy, finding a way to express that goal mm-hmm. through manifest physical reality. Yeah. Um, and so there, there ought to be not a, not a top down, this is what you're going to do, but, yeah. but the workers should be giving feedback back up and saying, yeah. well, this works and that doesn't work and we can do this and we can't do that. And this would be a better way to do it. And there should be feedback all the way up the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Top, and then the top informs of the vision. This is where we're headed. And then mm-hmm. so this whole thing is working together. Yeah. Makes sense. I think when Jonathan talks about, Christ being the top of the hierarchy mm-hmm. and um, the multiplicity of humanity being down here, mm-hmm. that even though we're at the bottom, he is continually coming down and mm-hmm. lifting yeah. us up, and, Lift and, and, up right? yeah. and teaching yeah. and lifting. So, so I don't think it's as simple as what's on top is dominant over what's on the bottom. I guess I was thinking that in Christianity, you're drawn a, up. Yes. And and in in and Taoism it's more like you're being pushed from behind. Oh, yes. Yes. That's what I think what I what I think the difference is. Okay. And see Jordan Peterson has says both of those are necessary. Yeah. They you, are both necessary. You I need mean, something you know, to draw you, you need yeah. something to push you from behind a little bit. Which, which is why, you know, it, it's it's like hard hard to say, you know, it's if Let's just say you're, um, in my case, where I can't profess to be a Christian in the traditional sense, but I can't say that I'm a Buddhist or anything like that. I find, you know, I find, um, I find a lot of value in the integration of both. And I'm not a hundred percent sure how to do that. <laughs> and for me, Persig does it, you know, does it in a way that at this point in my life, I can, I, I can mm-hmm. get a hold of. Well, when you were, when you were talking about being drawn and simultaneously mm-hmm. being pushed, I think where that shows up most clearly for me in the scripture, the, the verse that just popped into my mind was as mm-hmm. one man sharpens another, as iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. So it's in the community mm-hmm. that we we help push each other yeah. towards the goal that we're all being drawn towards. Right. <clears throat> yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and, you know, partly sometimes you have to be the one who pushes yourself, kind of mm-hmm. pull yourself up by the bootstraps. <laughs> <laughs> I know your time is, is this is your hard stop right here. So maybe this is a good place to... Yeah, well, that was a great conversation. So let's do this again soon. We're thinking of doing this monthly. I would love that. Yeah, let's do it. So let's get something on the calendar for February. And okay, we can continue with the same conversations if you want, because there's lots to plumb there. Well, my guess is that we probably that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, because it seems (laughs) to really be colonized. You know, this seems to colonize both of us. And we'll see where things mm-hmm. go in terms of uh, copyright strikes on using yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if just with the timestamps, I think we can, you know, people can figure it out. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you, Sevilla. Happy New well, Year, thanks, everybody. Karen. Thanks so this, much for, you know. I'm not sure if this is my first one that I've done since the new year. I haven't been doing very many lately, but um, 
well we've missed you because you know your channel is just so bright and you're you know so i'm glad to, if i'm if i'm one of them if i'm the first one of the first that's an honor and i'm really glad you're back thank you and if there's anybody who's listening still at this point if there's something that you would like me to pursue or some person you'd like me to get to come on here and talk let me know because i don't have much on my schedule so i'm open <laughs> to suggestions have a great day, Sabella. All right, Karen, you too. Okay, Bye. Bye-bye.